The following is a rebroadcast of Straight Talk About Money. The market data in this rebroadcast is not current and should not be used for any financial decisions. Well, as you know, on this show, we tend to have a lot of economists. We tend to have a lot of strategists. But, you know, those guys, and as good as they are, and we're, we're happy to have them on, as good, uh, as good as they are and as educated as they are, they all tend to have some kind of an agenda. I mean, they all tend to, there's a focus uh, that they have or something they're trying to achieve. So it's really refreshing to have someone on that doesn't have an agenda, someone who's capable of looking at everything that's going on out there and maybe interpreting it for us, and we couldn't do any better than have the two-time winner of the Best in Business Award from the Society of American Business Editors and Writers and a person who was selected for the Best in Business Writing in 2012 from the Columbia School of Journalism, and he's been a guest with us before. We really love having him. We love reading him. We talk about him on the time on the air. So we thought every now and then we just got to get him on, and we're fortunate enough to have today have with Mr. Morgan Housel from The Motley Fool. Good morning, Morgan. Good morning. Thanks for having me again. Thank you. Thank you for being back. All right, I just have to ask you, what are you going to write about Janet Yellen and her decision? <laughs> One of these days. You know, I'm you know, sort of going back to what you were talking about earlier. Uh, without having an agenda, I'm really just uh, really interested in what, what topics interest me and how, what can I learn about them and what can I write about them. Right. And, you know, I think you know, when the Fed is going to raise interest rates or what the impact on markets might be, uh, is probably not one of those topics because I think the impact for one will probably be substantially less than people think, and whatever the impact is, it'll probably be different than people think. So that's not really a topic that I spend too much attention focusing on, and I would implore investors to not spend too much time thinking about it them, themselves. Yeah, I, I would agree. But now you have written you you wrote a really interesting article about what good is history, and yeah. uh, and you know how people tend to. And I and I really enjoyed your article, and so I'd like you to expound upon that a little bit because, in, in some cases, they're they're doing the same thing uh, with the Federal Reserve. They, you know, always say, "Oh, well, the Fed needs to do this," or "They always do this," or "When this happens, this happens." And you and uh, you really uh, point out that that's not necessarily the case, and sometimes we rely much too much upon history. Yeah, I think there are two things going on here. One is that uh, when we're looking at history. We, we want to pretend that there is one version of history, that there is one story for how the past played out. And history is supposed to be cleanly objective, and it's just what are the facts, what happened, that's history. But it's almost never the case that that's how history is written and that's how it's interpreted. There are always two sides of the story. There are always different ways to frame a topic. There, there's, always, there's always a certain amount of... Uh, picking and choosing certain data points and certain, and, and, and certain topics when we're explaining history. And so really I think what happens is that people pick the version of history that suits their pre-existing beliefs. Whatever you want to believe is how the world works. That's the version of history that you're going to pick. That's the first problem. The second problem is, I think, how we collect and measure historical data, particularly on the economy and the stock market, over long periods of time. Uh, it changes over the years, and it's not necessarily apples to apples over time. I'll give you one example. The S&P 500, which is a large collection of, of, of stocks in the United States, the makeup, the, the, the components of the S&P 500 has changed dramatically over time. They didn't even include financial stocks in the index until 1976. Uh, when the index first started in the 1950s, it was almost entirely railroads and industrial stocks. Now it's more than half technology and financial stocks. Uh, 
So when we're comparing today's S&P 500 to that of 50 or 60 years ago, it's a totally different index. But we want to pretend, I think, that it's apples to apples. And we can say, you know, if the S&P 500 has historically traded at 15 times earnings and now it's 17 times earnings, that today's market is expensive. And maybe that's true, but it's not really an apples to apples comparison. So those are, I think, the two problems with history that get people tripped up. And I think the takeaway that I mentioned in the article is not necessarily that history is bad. It's that the really the lessons of history that people should pay attention to are the human lessons about how people screw up, lessons about uh, being overconfident, lessons about being biased, lessons about being short-sighted. Those are all really important historical takeaways. But I think when people look at historical data and specific events in history and expect that they're going to repeat themselves in some clean, predictable way, that I think is dangerous. Yeah, in fact, I, I want to get to that in a minute uh, because you you are a uh, a student of human nature, probably more than any other writer I've I've uh, ever read. You really do a fine job of uh, of kind of taking us apart and sh- and holding up a mirror uh, to the average investor and say, "Hey, take a look at yourself and how you make decisions." Um, but uh, I just want to uh, ask you one thing because you just you there's just a little vignette out that I saw this morning on why market forecasters are so wrong, so kind of staying in the uh, the same line of thinking of history. Because so, so many market forecasters come out and um, and and use history as, as the basis for their forecast, and you say that uh, forecasters need to be taken with a grain of salt, and you said, and that's even being polite. So, uh, <laughs> right. What, <laughs> right. so, so what is your thoughts about forecasting? Because... Uh, you know, uh, there, are, uh, there are a lot of smart people. There are a lot of people that I frankly just think uh, are looking for press coverage. I mean, I don't think anything can happen in our economy today that Dennis Gartman doesn't have an opinion on. I, uh, you know, I, it's just amazing. Uh, Gar- Gartman is uh, – I used to think that Donald Trump was a hog for headlines. Gartman is passing him like Trump is standing still. So uh, what is your thought about these guys that are always coming out with these – constant forecast for which they're not held accountable well look i think i think the market is uh reasonably efficient at pricing in uh most known information it's not totally efficient but it's it's mostly efficient so most of the stuff that we know today the news the stuff that is in the news headlines by and large is already priced into the market and therefore forecasting you know what the market is going to do when the Fed raises interest rates. Well, every investor in the world knows that the Fed is going to raise interest rates. So that's already priced into the market. And what is left that really moves markets in the future are surprises that nobody is talking about today and that, by definition, nobody can forecast. So you know, just give you an example. If it was early 2008 and you were a market forecaster trying to predict what the stock market was going to do in 2008, and you were the smartest economist in the world. You had all the historical data you could ever want. You had a team of analysts with PhDs from Harvard. And, and, and it's January 2008. There is no possible way that you could have ever known that Ben Bernanke was going to choose to bail out AIG but not Lehman Brothers. There's no way you could have known that. Ben Bernanke didn't know that at the time. But that event alone had a massive impact on markets in 2008. And I think it's always like that, that the events that move the market the most are just basically trivia and accident that nobody could have possibly known beforehand. If it was January 2001 and you were a market forecaster, there's no possible way you could have known 
that a bunch of crazy guys with box cutters were going to hijack a plane in nine months. But that had a huge impact on the market. But it was totally unpredictable unless, of course, you were involved in the event. And it's always like that going forward. It'll be like that this year and next year and the year after that, that what really moves markets and really matters are the things that nobody could possibly know. And the stuff that we do know today is already priced in and probably doesn't matter that much. All right. Well, this is kind of this is kind of a great segue into an area that I truly think that you're an expert because I love reading your comments in your articles about the average investor and the mistakes the average investor makes. And I'm suddenly being given the high sign <laughs> that I've only got 60 seconds. And so when we come back, uh, what I'd like to talk about is, and we'll, and we'll start off. Uh, why do investors uh, rely so much on these forecasters, on these newsletters. Um, what is it about us that feels like we need confirmation from someone else other than our own gut resources? Because I think most people, I think if they just listen to their own common sense and their own gut, they probably make better choices. But we'll get to get into that a little bit in the next segment. So stay with us, folks. We've got Morgan Housel with us today from The Motley Fool. Uh, it is a great show. I hope you'll stay with us. Back in just a few moments, you're listening to Straight Talk Money. The following is a rebroadcast of Straight Talk About Money. The market data in this rebroadcast is not current and should not be used for any financial decisions. We have with us today one of our favorite guests, a very and a very bright man and a great writer, Mr. Morgan Housel from The Motley Fool. And Morgan, uh, before we get started again, uh, can you tell the folks how they can reach you, how they can reach The Motley Fool, how they can sign up? A uh, little commercial time. Yeah, so you, you can go to fool.com, uh, and there you'll find a bunch of free resources of free articles about general investing topics to retirement topics and insurance topics to coverage on certain stocks and industries. You can sign up for some of our investment services that make investment picks all the way down to wealth management and private accounts uh, and whatnot. So there's a whole range of services that you can all access from fool.com we're trying to help the world invest better and we do that through both investing and personal finance and retirement advice uh, so we are trying to run the whole gamut and do it in a way that is easy for average people to understand so much of the financial industry is based on complication and obfuscation and the more complicated you can make something look the higher the fee you can charge and we've really tried to uh, explain things in a way that anyone can understand Investing at its core, I think, is a pretty simple subject. It's emotionally challenging. Uh, it's psychologically challenging. But long-term investing at its core is not terribly complicated. So that's the way in which we try to describe it. Yeah. In fact, you guys do a really good job, I think, uh, of, of, of trying to assist the average investor into controlling themselves and controlling their temperament, which is such an important part of, of success in investing because it's you you really got to get you really got to control yourself. Uh, as I mentioned during the break, uh, one thing I say on the air a lot is that the worst investment advisor all of us can have is our own emotions, and I include the professionals in that too. You know, I I, I know of no instance, and when you're under fear, that you really make a great decision. You may make a decision that kind of keeps you alive to the next day, but it may be a a very poor decision. What are some of the mistakes that you see? the average investor make, uh, and what are some of the things they can do about it to to maybe um, maybe prevent themselves from hurting their investment performance? Yeah, I mean, the, 
the grandfather of investment mistakes. It kind of sits at the core, the base of the pyramid, is investors' tendency, of course, to buy high and sell low over time. It's when the market is booming, you want to put everything in, and then after it pulls back, you get scared and take everything out. It's a very simplified mistake, and it sounds almost flippant to say, but that is uh, the single largest mistake that, per- that all investors, professional or otherwise, will make over time. And I think what's really important that people can do to help prevent that and mitigate it in the future is to look at your past investing behavior. How did you react in 2008 as an investor? Were you level-headed and, and you left your investments alone or even added to your investments? Well, that's great. Were you, were you scared and nervous, and did you sell some stocks at a really inopportune time? If that's the case, I think you should use that as an indication of your future behavior. It's a pretty good pre- predictor of how you're going to react during the next market pullback. Is how you reacted during the last one. And everyone wants to say when the market has done really well as it has done in the last six years, then everyone thinks they have a high risk tolerance. And people say, I'm okay if there's going to be a market pullback. Uh, you know, that, that won't worry me. I'm a long-term investor. And then it happens and they realize, no, this does hurt. This does worry me. I want out. So it's, it, it's really difficult to be in the present time and try to project your future emotions. That's a very difficult thing to do. I think what people should do is look at their past emotions and just extrapolate those out through the future. So that, to me, is really the most simple but most effective way that investors can mitigate uh, long-term investing mistakes. In fact, uh, you wrote an article that was interesting called the, "This Was ne- This Was Never Easy," and you talk about uh, oh, uh, you used in there some of the headlines of which I thought was fascinating. Uh, you know, constantly that are investors being bombarded with uh, about you know how it's different this time, etc. And one of the things you say there is that good investing hurts. And what do you mean by that? Right. Well, it's not supposed to be comfortable. That's why you get paid a high return. If you do, if you want to be totally comfortable and have uh, a, a clean, smooth ride, you can you can put your money in a bank account or CDs or treasury bonds, and you'll get a very smooth, comfortable ride. You also won't get any returns at all out of it, of course. If you want to earn the historically high returns that the stock market has offered over time, there's a cost that comes with that. That's not free. That's not someone just giving you returns because they want to be nice to you. There's a cost that comes with it, and the cost that comes uh, that needs to be paid to earn high returns in the stock market is dealing with a discomfort like bear markets and pullbacks and uncertainty, not knowing what the market is going to do this year or next. We have no idea if the market's going to go up 30% or down 30% in the next year, and that's uncomfortable. But dealing with that discomfort is why over long periods of time, talking 5, 10, 20 years, the market has offered a good rate of return. And I think not realizing that, that there is a price to pay in the short run if you want to earn long-run returns. Not realizing that and accepting it is one of the reasons that investors get tripped up all the time. Everybody wants high returns, but perfectly stable, predictable returns. That's what everybody wants, but it does not exist. And I don't think it will ever exist in the stock market. So understanding, I think, what game you're playing when you're investing in stocks is very important. Absolutely. Uh, In fact, you say in that same article that unsustainable things can last longer than you think. And uh, right. uh, and I think that that's I think that that's what happens is that you know people feel like they have the willpower you know that I can I'll hold through this and yet you know they'll get in a situation where things just drag on and on and on and they eventually lose their will. Yeah, you know people have been saying that the, that the market has been overvalued for six years now, 
And these are smart people who make some very rational arguments. But just because you can say, look, by this historical metric, the stock market is overvalued, that does not tell you anything about what it's going to do tomorrow or next month or next year or over the next five years. So it was 1996 that Alan Greenspan, former Fed chairman, started using the term irrational exuberance to describe the stock market. It was 1996, and the market kept rallying for another four or five years after that. You know, by any by by any metric, too, the housing market, the national housing market, was overvalued in a bubble in probably 2003. But it, it kept surging for another three or four years after that. So there's there's a big disconnect between what seems unsustainable today and forecasting what might happen tomorrow. Those are two very different things, and a lot of investors get tripped up, I think, by looking at metrics today that shows this is overvalued or this is undervalued or you know, by this metric today, this is what should happen tomorrow, but it really doesn't work like that. And they can last for so much longer than you think that it can test your will and it can also just uh, become not a very good investment. You know, if you, if you listen to Alan Greenspan in 1996, who basically said stocks are overvalued in 1996, and you sold in 1996, uh, even after stocks eventually crashed in 2001, you know, you you still that was still a poor investment during that time. You would have been much better off buying stocks in 1996 and even enduring the crash in 2000. Because even by 2002, you were you were better off. In 2003, you were better off than you were before. So you can miss so much upside by trying to protect yourself from down, from downside that it ends up being uh, a terrible mistake for investors. All right, well, we've only got a minute to go. What is the one? I guess. Uh... One piece of advice that you'd leave the, the listeners today. You know, I, I, what I would say is I would spend less time for investors thinking about what, it, what different investments should I own, what different stocks should I own, what different funds should I own. And I would spend more time looking at your own behavior and saying, what kind of person am I? What are my goals? And how can I make sure that I can be an investor for the long term? What do I need to do? What behavior traits do I need to focus on to ensure that I can be around for the long term? And they need to read your articles because you do a great job explaining this. Thank you so much, Morgan, for being with us today. We really appreciate it, and I know our listening also does too. You have been listening to a rebroadcast of Straight Talk About Money. The market data in this rebroadcast is not current and should not be used for any financial decisions.